This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Monday, time for our Zoomer Squad, and it's also International Women's Day. And while I'm hearing a lot about how women in the workforce and mothers of young children are especially disadvantaged by the pandemic, I'd like to drill down on something I am not hearing about, and that is older women elder women more likely to find themselves in long-term care or to find themselves poor and single. So let's begin there. And now I am mindful of the fact that my panel is made up of three guys. And that is because Marissa Lennox, CARP's chief policy officer, is on maternity leave, which is a good thing for women. So let me give the numbers out again. If you have questions or stories to share about your experience as a woman or women in your life, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Now let's say hello to the Zoomer Squads, David Kravitz, Vice President of Zoomer Media and Chief Marketing Officer at CARP, Bill Van Gorder, Interim Chief Policy Officer at CARP, and Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor of Zoomer Magazine. Hi, everyone. Hi, Libby. Hi, Libby. Okay, let us begin with David. Um, you know, as it is with all things pertaining to older people, uh, you know, this International Women's Day, I haven't seen anything about those people. Well, I think you're right, and I think that in the context of, of why women are being celebrated, um, we've watched uh, articles about, you know, breaking the uh, the glass ceiling, women in the workforce, women in executives, women on boards. The next phase is going to be women, uh, it's already happening, taking the lead in the reinvention of aging and the problems and opportunities both. I mentioned, too, right away, dominating in caregiving. Uh, and, you know, we're saying that home care is the future of long-term care. Well, the nature of home care is going to be largely shaped I think, by women who are doing uh, that caregiving and, and will be leading the, um, some of the innovations and, uh, you know, in aging in place. So women are very, very much the majority of caregivers. And as you said earlier, they're unfortunately more likely to be impoverished and uh, alone because they live longer than men. So uh, that's a problem that we all have to address. So we're going to be looking at International Women's Day, I think, through that lens of, uh, the new vision of aging and what it means for women and how women are taking the lead. Uh, Peter, I mean, it, it is a fact that women live longer and that's, uh, that's what is at the bottom of, of a lot of those things. But there's also things like uh, we're seeing a big phenomenon of uh, late life divorce and women take time out of their careers to care for children. So, uh, you know, they end up poorer for other reasons as well, sort of for the same reasons that affect younger women, too. Yeah, um the the uh, you, you said it best. I mean, the the, the older women in interna- International Women's Day hasn't been celebrated. They're the ones who made all this happen. They they were the trailblazers. They they worked and cared for children, and um, and it's an awful it's it's an awful um, testament that that we haven't protected them uh, during the pandemic. Uh, you know, not only with um, you know the income gap, but as well, um, over eighty, I think sixty percent of the deaths. I was looking at the totals today. Sixty percent of the deaths in the over eighty age group have been women, and um, you know it, they've taken it on the chin during the pandemic. And and uh, you know today's a day we can celebrate them. Not only you know remember those who inspired us, but also the women on the front lines who who make up the bulk of. Uh, you know the the frontline workers. Ninety uh, percent of PSWs are women. You know, so so it's just a day to sort of uh, 
celebrate the accomplishments and also acknowledge the the impact that COVID has had on them. Yeah, and and Bill, you know, I find it very interesting that, uh, uh, and I don't know if it's a a function, if it happened because of a good or a bad thing, that so many of our public officers of health, the public health people leading, are women and. I don't know if uh, that's a function that maybe there were there were fewer barriers in that aspect of medicine, but uh, it's something that you know we can't help but notice. Well, we we certainly do, and uh, one one of the reasons that I'm personally aware of because the the work that I've done in the past with Dalhousie uh, Medical School students is uh, I've been doing that for twenty years, and twenty years ago. Uh, medical schools were filled with 90% men and 10% women. Now it's it's the opposite in Dalhousie as I see the new students coming in. So certainly more women are more moving into the medical uh, field. More women are becoming specialists, and more of them are giving uh, leadership. All of which is is a good uh, is a good thing because frankly with in the area that I work with them, which is in terms of communication and what we might call bedside manner, frankly, women are better at it than men. In general, yeah. Um, <laughs> in general. Uh, David, uh, in terms of, of the disadvantages faced by elder women, uh, what are your thoughts on that? Is, is there anything that you think should be targeted particularly at that demographic? Definitely caregiving, because they are disproportionately more likely to be family caregivers, caring for an elderly or disabled spouse. It's just statistically, the significant majority of caregivers are women. So all the deficiencies in our policies regarding caregiving, ranging from the, the amount of the tax relief they get to the support for better home care for the, even, even things like making the system a little bit easier to navigate to, to, to encourage this, um, all of the deficiencies in the way we deal with caregiving uh, fall more heavily on women. And that's where I would start because they are doing, I, I don't remember the uh, figures we've published, numerous reports on this, but it's tens of billions of dollars worth of unpaid labor um, in, in the service of uh, propping up the healthcare system by providing these services that the healthcare system can't or won't provide. And that is definitely falling on the shoulders of women more than men. And I would start there. Well, I, I think if memory serves, the number that StatsCan had, and this is a number of years ago, was something like $38 billion. And And a note on relationships, and I can tell you that older women and uh, that encompasses i don't even know what i mean by that but um women say in their 60s who have either become widowed or divorced or whatever i know are more reluctant to get into a relationship with an older man and certainly to move in because they say right off the bat i don't want to end up being that person's caregiver it's perfectly true perfectly true and then throw in the complications it's a little bit strange to talk about it but it's a function of people living longer now they've got adult children yeah intervening saying you know if mom marries this guy uh does that mean we're going to have to look after him well and Who's and does that mean he's going to take our inheritance he's going to take our inheritance and i don't like his kids that much anyway because his son is a freeloader so you got all those, some of them are quite, you know, novel, they're different, they seem kind of almost exotic. But the number of people who are spousal caregivers who, who, who seriously do have this, this uh, demand on them and they do it out of love. I mean, just think back to how many um, people phoned us during the previous shows about nursing homes, mainly women. I'm visiting my husband in the nursing home and I'm caring for him. And why won't they let me go and care for him? So the, the, this was done out of love and out of uh, uh, you know both duty and love. And it's just statistically more on the shoulders of the women. It just is. Yeah, I, yeah. I'm I'm going to take a couple of calls, and I want to get back to this relationship issue because another thing that we're seeing a big growth of now are lats uh, living apart together. So women get into relationships, but they won't move in. 
<laughs> so let us take a call from Pat in St. Catharines. Hi, Pat. Hi, good morning, Libby. Um, life wasn't going to talk about that, but I took care of my husband for 15 years and became a double amputee. And he passed away. And Sorry to hear that. No way I want to get into a relationship. I'm 80 years old, and I'm very, very happy. But I give credit to your radio station because I listen to your station all day long. And it just puts me in a happy mood. On the weekends, of course, it's a different programming. So, And I do listen, of course, on Sunday <laughs> to the uh, program at one o'clock. One thing that I did want to mention is that um, women should remember that um, we didn't we didn't even get vote till 1918 when the and to the when the suffrage the people had to protest to get the vote. Yeah and we got it before uh, they got it in other places. Yes yes. So, and that's not that long ago. Well, no, it's not in historical terms. It certainly isn't, Pat. Uh, we always like to hear that uh, we're making people happy here. So thank you for your call. We appreciate your kind words. Thanks. Okay, and thanks again for your all your programming. <laughs> okay, let's Bye. go Let's go to Jay in Kitchener. Hi, Jay. Uh, hello, ma'am. I just wanted to, I'm, uh, first of all, a CARP member. Great. And I just wanted to hey, thank, thank you. Thank I've been also involved in personal care, uh, receiving it uh, since 2003, but I've been involved since 1984. I just want to thank uh, all the PSWs and the uh, various nurses who've been helping, uh, predominantly women, but I also want to thank the men who do this career as well. Okay, Jay, thanks. Thank you. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when it comes to PSWs, a lot of issues, it's a poorly paid profession. And and now we're learning, and, and there are problems, that people who work in home care get paid even less than those who are working in long-term care. So that's uh, part of a big part of the issue. When things are considered to be a, a women's job, they the money isn't there. It's absolutely true. 30% of senior women... Uh, live in low income uh, versus about 25% uh, for men. And women over, single women over the age of 65 uh, have 30% of them live in what we call the uh, poverty line. There's a huge difference. And that's one of the reasons that CARP has been advocating for uh, uh, not uh, a, a tax rebate for uh, uh, caregivers, but actually caregiver support because the women end up uh, doing that uh, caregiving and uh, don't have the support they need. Absolutely. And, and uh, Peter, uh, you, you're writing for the magazine, which is sort of on top of these a lot of these trends and, and again to the relationship thing where it used to be that, you know, women always wanted to be in a relationship. And, you know, these days, this, this is a big change that I've noticed, you know, once uh, they're not in the relationship that they may have been in for a very long time with, whether it's a marriage or common law, uh, they're saying, that's it. No more. Right, and and Libby, that that's a factor too of of um, you know raising in, income for women is that they're financially independent now, and they're able to go it alone. Whereas before, they may have had to uh, get remarried for financial purposes, financial security. But now, I, I I suppose it's a good sign they're doing that because it means they're they're financially well enough off that they can go it alone. You know. And and so that's a that's a major step forward, right? And they're also, I guess, uh, trying to protect uh, their children's inheritances. Absolutely, absolutely, because uh, you know it, it it gets into such a mess after it, you know with, with subsequent marriages and uh, and you know it, 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 it's 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 just different times now. Before you know, an older woman may have jumped at the chance to get remarried now they're 
they're they're you know, I I think according according to what I've read in our magazine anyway they they're they're taking their time and making a uh, you know an independent decision rather than one based on need. Uh huh. And uh, David, uh, what do you see with this in terms of the future of relationships for older women? Well, I think that um, the first thing I'd like to point out is that the population that is in this age group is now so large that you shouldn't be surprised to see a number of different segments. Um, We know, for example, that to the extent that baby boomers, baby boomers being 55 to 75 roughly, to the extent that they're getting divorced, over half of the divorces are initiated by the women. So the the uh, old model of the woman, you know, desperately dependent on the hubby and hoping that his eyes don't wander and she's absolutely in trouble if he strays. Now they're the ones that are saying, uh, I don't like this relationship anymore and I have confidence that I can. We see a huge rise in w- women entrepreneurs starting their own businesses, as Peter points out, leaving the relationship so that that it's independence. But when you think about it, it isn't that strange because if you look back on Woodstock and on the founding of uh, uh, MS Magazine and Women's Lib and that whole generation, uh, they're now in their 70s. So the, those people uh, at Woodstock are 75 years old. They like Gloria Steinem is their, over 80, and boy, uh, does she look 80, amazing. Right. Yeah, and they. so why would they suddenly become their grandmothers? So they're blazing the new trail. They're just continuing on uh, to do the same things they were doing and bringing the same attitudes they were bringing now to this age, and I think that's very much reflected, and Peter can vouch for this, and uh, in, in, in how Zoomer magazine is covering this, and how many stories in every issue feature, not, not exclusively women, but many women, whether they're entrepreneurs, whether they're going back to school, whether they're upending their lives at middle age or late middle age and doing different things and blazing new trails. And I think that's the inspirational side of this. There's the, the you know, problematic, we've got to help people side of this. And we have to recognize that, especially on International Women's Day. But there's also the inspirational side of it, that they are, in many ways, women are the driving force in the entire phenomenon, the reinvention of aging. Yeah. Um, so, uh, just to wrap things up, I'm going to give both, both Peter and Bill 20 seconds. But on that note, uh, you know, it's how, you know, older women are generally, um, they end up invisible. So what do we do to change that, Bill? Well, the, one of, one of the issues that we're dealing with, uh, David points out what's happening with the younger, uh, the, the younger demographic of older women, but the older women, especially rural women, uh, did not make that transition. And, and now the, the single rural women don't have the income. To, the, the median value of, of the retirement assets, though the median value is only $3,000 of those people. They, they live strictly on all the, uh, their Canada pension, old age uh, security. So, so as the younger demographic of uh, uh, the older age group of women uh, becomes more successful, more able to be on their own, we've left the, the much older and the rural uh, and, frankly, less educated women uh, behind. And that's the forgotten uh, 30% that are living well below the poverty line in many uh, rural parts of many uh, parts of our province. Uh, Peter, last 20 seconds to you. Well, the we we celebrate, um, you know, every issue we celebrate women's accomplishments, older women's accomplishments, and I think it's just a matter of time before the rest of the media, the rest of society, uh, catches up and and sees that they're they're missing this key segment of society. There there's a lot going on: entrepreneurial, business, healthcare, politics. You know, they're they're missing all that. We're, uh, we're writing about it, and it's just a matter of time before the rest of the society catches up. Okay, well, nice to end on that hopeful note. <laughs> I guess the question is, how much time? Thank you so much, Bill Van Gorder, Peter Mugridge, and David Kravitz. Thanks, Libby. Okay. Thanks, People, we have to take a break, and when we come back, we'll be talking about the latest. Some vaccines getting into doctor's offices and pharmacies for whom... When, all of that, when we return.
You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. It's exciting news, especially if you are between the ages of 60 and 64. Today marks the official beginning of a pilot project that will see select pharmacies in Toronto, Kingston and Windsor, Essex start vaccinating clients in that age group with the AstraZeneca vaccine. Family doctors will also be doing that following an agreement with the province uh, and the Ontario Medical Association that we told you about on Friday. Now, we are anxious to hear some details on all of this, as I am sure you are. Let me give you the numbers, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Now I'm joined by Dr. Samantha Hill, President of the Ontario Medical Association, Justin Bates, CEO of the Ontario Pharmacists Association, and Dean Miller, pharmacist and president and CEO of Whole Health Pharmacy. Everybody, welcome. Thank you for being with us. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Lily. Or thanks, Libby. Happy International Women's Day. Thanks. Okay. Good afternoon. Uh, let us begin with Dean. So do you actually already have these vaccines in store, and are you contacting your clients? Uh the two questions, uh, Libby. The first one, uh, do we have the vaccines in the pharmacies as, as of yet? Um, we're expecting them imminently. So are they in the pharmacies yet? No, they're not. But uh, we, they should be in within the day or so. Uh-huh. And uh, second of all, certainly our pharmacies are actively preparing. Uh, they all know sort of the, the age range and uh, they're active with their patients uh, right as we speak. So if you're in one of the, if you're a patient at one of the pharmacies that, that might be involved, you might be getting a call. And is, is, so it, it's really only if you, if you happen to be a patient at the right, or a client at the right pharmacy. Well, certainly the, the, the age is, it's pretty much open to any uh, Ontarian 60 to 64. Um, you know, our pharmacies, of course, would only have access to people within their database. Um, but, um, you know, uh, anyone 60 to 64 um, is going to be active uh, and able to get the vaccine in a pharmacy in this first group. Okay, so uh, Justin Bates, uh, is is that right? If you don't happen to be a patient of a pharmacy that's in the pilot project, but you're industrious and you call and you get through to one of them, you can get an appointment. Is that right? That's right. And and pharmacies are going to be utilizing their own booking system. And many have uh, websites where uh, residents can go in Ontario to look at uh, as well as call, uh, call centers and calling in. And some even utilize uh, mobile applications to uh, make it even more convenient for, for patients. So we're going to manage this initially at least uh, through an appointment-based model because we do expect the demand to be quite significant. And if our experience this fall with the flu season is any indication, uh, we certainly learned a lot and gained insight in how to manage this safely and effectively given all of the safety protocols that are in place. Dr. Samantha Hill, hi. Happy International Women's Day. Happy International Women's Day to you as well. Thank you. So um, what's what's the story with the doctors? I have to say uh, that as soon as I heard about this on Friday, I emailed my doctor and, and he knew nothing. <laughs> Fair enough. So let's start with, first of all, how much this is good news. This is amazing that we have all these vaccines coming in and we certainly applaud everyone, Premier Ford, Minister Elliott, General Hillier, and the entire task force for working with us all, all of the health professionals, to make sure that we can get those vaccines to patients as soon as possible. As, as the general likes to say, this is definitely one of these uh, all-hands-on-deck type of situations. As far as the family docs having access, you know, we are in a place right now where everyone is very excited, patients and providers alike, and we have been working with everyone, including all the primary care organizations, to make sure that we can help get the AstraZeneca into the arms of Ontarians by early June. The number one priority, of course, is to make sure that we don't waste any of the vaccine and that we deliver it as fast as possible, just like we did with the flu vaccine. 
Yeah. So, uh, you know, uh, Dean was saying he's expecting his first shipments, uh, you know, within a day. Uh, what kind of a timeline uh, are you looking at for practices that want to be doing this? Absolutely. And it's important that you register that it's practices that want to be doing this, of course. And so family docs have the capacity hard-coded in the way they interact with their patients to be able to pull those populations, whether it's the 80 and up or the 60 to 64. And so we know that the pilot for primary care to deliver those vaccines will start soon. As far as the actual details that you're trying to get out of me, I don't have them yet. So hopefully I will get them and I will share them. Okay, start soon. We have no idea what that means. Uh, so let's uh, focus uh, on on the pharmacies. And uh, uh, Justin Bates, uh, the you're you're talking about the sixty to sixty four age group. Is that going to be you know very tightly monitored? It is. We will be providing screening and assessments as we do for other services to ensure that. There's no queue jumping, and uh, only those that are qualified will get the uh, vaccination. One of the complexities in this particular first wave or initial launch is that the vaccine that we're going to be receiving expires April 2nd. So we have a limited window within the three regions and the 330 pharmacies that will be participating to make sure we get all of that out in the next two and a half weeks and then into arms. So mobilizing quickly around that and then scaling up from there. And uh, do you, how many doses altogether are you getting in this first shipment for pharmacies? So we're still, yeah, we're still working through that. Um, I know that there's 190,000 in the initial shipment that was received uh, by Ontario from the federal government last week. And I think in total there will be another 190,000 AstraZeneca coming into the province. So uh, that'll be allocated accordingly. And uh, we're expecting to do... 40 as a minimum per day per pharmacy within the 300 to get through it all between now and the end of March. Okay, and and uh, am I extrapolating? But is the situation that uh, the the mass vaccination centers that are promised for later in the month uh, is is the situation that they will not be using AstraZeneca at all? Do, does anybody know the answer to that? Yeah, I think the initial plan is to put this allotment of AstraZeneca through to family uh, doctors as well as through pharmacy. And then it remains to be seen whether that's more of a short-term goal or if we'll be adding the Johnson & Johnson uh, vaccine. But I know from a pharmacy perspective, in this initial launch, we won't be dealing with the Moderna or Pfizer vaccine. Okay. Um, Yeah, my understanding is that I was just wondering if uh, if the... uh the public health vaccination centers will be using AstraZeneca and I guess they won't be. And I think Rudy has a question that a lot of other people have. Hi, Rudy. Yes, hi. hi let me, I, first, let me ask the doctor, uh, if a person goes to get their vaccine uh, at the clinic, now how do you know that that person may not already uh, have uh, uh, COVID-19? And what happens if they get a vaccine while they're, they've got COVID? I, I think that was to me. Was that to me? Uh, sure, you uh, yeah, go ahead. Dr. Hill and the other doctor? Sure. So um, the answer to that is there isn't any absolute way to know for sure. As we know that with COVID, you can walk around and be asymptomatic for a little bit of time. We will expect everyone to do all of the appropriate screening. And if you are high risk, you will be asked to wait until you have... Um, distance yourself enough from your uh, your first-degree contact. But that being said, we don't think there is any adverse outcome to getting the vaccine if you are already um, infected and asymptomatic. It certainly won't hurt you at all. The worst-case scenario is that it might be a little bit of a waste of a dose. I see. Okay, thanks for that. And the other question is, uh, so what about the people between 65 and 74? Where, when, or when are these? When are they going to get vaccinated? Yeah, good question, Rudy. I'm I'm going to let you go and let them answer. Then because the, the answer is not with that vaccine. And and I, you know, I, I'm about to ask our panel uh, something that might be politically sensitive. But last week, uh, the epidemiologists that I talked to uh, were very disappointed by that recommendation from NACI, the National uh, Immunization Council, because it came just as France and Germany reversed their original guidance because of real-world data that AstraZeneca is fine in people over 65. And it seems like the result of this is that, 
you know, older people, the older you are, the more disadvantaged you are. Is there anybody willing to respond to that? I'll take a stab at it, Libby. So um, I think the important thing is to realize that everything is a moving target right now. We're, as we've said before on the show, we're living and working at the edge of science as it develops. The last thing anybody wants to do is expose an elderly person to an increased risk or to harm them in some way. And so when the data wasn't clear about whether or not AstraZeneca was safe, the safest thing was to restrict it to a certain age group, that being less than 65. As the data becomes available, it will be reviewed by Health Canada and NASA continuously. And if the indications need to change, they will. But no one is restricting access to Moderna or Pfizer from people over the age of 65. The idea right now is that we're going in stepwise fashion and trying to make sure we get the most vulnerable, the safest vaccines possible first. Okay, yes. But um, uh, Dean, do you have an opinion? I mean, the, the fact is the real world data is there based on two months. Most of Britain was vac- vaccinated with AstraZeneca. And, uh, you know, this just puts people, say, in that age group, 65 to 74, uh, are going to end up behind a lot of younger people. It's a very interesting question of AstraZeneca this morning because we got it from one of our pilot pharmacies. And it was, if I'm 64 when I get the first dose and then I turn 65, what, 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 what do I do? You turn and- into a pumpkin. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, the answer quite clearly from AstraZeneca was, and, uh, you know, as, as Dr. Hill said, there is data. There just isn't an ample amount of data to actually make the recommendation through Health Canada. So the answer that I got back was, you know, there's AstraZeneca feels very confident that there's a, a, a good enough safety and tolerability, um, you know, uh, model there to recommend that, you get it. So it's not, it's not dangerous in any way. So I think that the data, as we get more of it, uh, those recommendations on date ranges and things like that will, will change. And as Justin said, you know, there was a, an urgency around AstraZeneca because of the tight timelines on the expiry date. So I think, you know, in a perfect world, you know, we probably would have gone to the 75 to 80 or the 70 to 75 group next. But, uh, you know, We've we've all been given clear message. Don't waste any doses and get them into arms. Yeah, I mean, you know, I know uh, that. But th- there's a, another question with this as well, uh, and that is of the poisoning of the well. I mean, you know, our experts and Dr. Hill just said this is a moving target. But for a lot of people, this adds up to confusion. And, and there are a lot of questions because people are hearing, well, this vaccine isn't as good or it's, it's not good in older people or, uh, you know, the efficacy number on it isn't as high. Uh, so, you know, even if it turns out that it's fine, it, you know, people are not going to want it. Uh, Justin, what's your view of that? Well, I think the, the the data from the AstraZeneca vaccine shows that it prevents serious illness, and it's very effective in that, and, and also uh, death. So I think we have to look at this as getting the vaccine out is more important um, and getting people vaccinated quickly and accelerating some of those plans. Um, but certainly, you know, as Dr. Hill mentioned, this is we're learning on the fly here. We're trying to be agile, adapt to the circumstances while still giving people uh, access as quickly as possible so that we can get out of this situation that we're in with the pandemic and get herd immunity. But I, I certainly think the AstraZeneca vaccine is a good vaccine. I know that the recommendations around the under 65 is somewhat uh, changing and, and evolving, but, um, you know, I think that's part of this whole process. Uh, wait, sorry, Dr. Dr. Hill, before you respond, I have uh, another question, because I have heard experts say that you can't even really compare the trial results and the efficacy numbers uh, between one vaccine to another. So can you explain why? Exactly what I was going to say. So oh, thank sorry. You for asking the question. Um, so when we do a 
study, the results of the study are very dependent on when it was done, where it was done, who the population is it was done on, um, the math and the statistical analysis that was used. And so the numbers of 90 versus 66 that people are quoting, they're not actually comparable numbers because this wasn't a head-to-head trial. And what that means is if you wanted to know which one was more effective, you would actually have to run the trial in the same group at the same time with one arm getting one vaccine and the other arm getting the other vaccine. So we can't say that one vaccine is better than the other. I know that's kind of hard to wrap your head around when you look at what looks like a giant discrepancy in the numbers, but we've seen it before in science and we will see it again. The timing, the location, the analysis very much can change what that number looks like. So as uh, as Justin Bates just said, we need to look at the fact that all of the vaccines have excellent protection against those worst-case scenarios, death, ECMO, ICU, ventilation, the things that are really, really bad. Because honestly, at the end of the day, if everyone in the world has a sniffle, we're okay with that. What we want to prevent are the people getting really sick and needing to go to the hospital or people carrying it around and infecting each other. And these vaccines seem to do that all very well. Okay. I'm going to take a call from Leo in Scarborough. Leo, you're confused. Yes, uh, Libby. Um, I just came from uh, Shoppers Drug Mart and asked them about the vaccine, and they don't know what we're talking about. Okay, uh, it's a, it's My a pilot wife. project, but I will let Justin explain. Yeah, okay. thanks for the question. And one of the things we want to do is avoid any confusion. We want to have a concise message out to where to go and when to go. And there is uh, 330 pharmacies that are participating. It is a limited launch because of the supply challenges. There's not enough coming in to open it up to all pharmacies and all uh, clinics out there. And that's our shared goal is to get it out into as many immunizers' hands as possible to give the greatest access that we can. But at the moment, um, there will be a website that the government is launching likely within the next couple of days that will list out the participating pharmacies. And uh, that's where you can go to get direction on which one uh, and what hours of operation they have. Okay, and 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 people be assured that that we will make that uh, website available. Uh, we'll we'll put a link on our website. We'll tell you on air where that website is because that's uh, what people want to know. Uh, we're just about almost out of time. I'm going to take a call from Diane and Whitby. Hi, Diane. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. How are you today? I'm fine, thanks. Go ahead. Uh, my question is regarding the a vaccine and an autoimmune disease. Is that something that I should be concerned with? Shall I take that? Sure. All right. So, um, first of all, it's a great question, and I'm glad you're asking questions. One of the most important things right now is for people to have a sense of their own health and what's going on in the world, and it's amazing that you do. Without knowing which immune condition and more about you personally, none of us can offer you very specific advice over the phone other than you should talk to your primary care provider, like your family doctor, who will be able to answer that. On a gestalt basis, what I can say is for most of the autoimmune disorders, there's absolutely no contraindication for the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine. And the AstraZeneca is probably fine, but it's worth a conversation with your family doctor. And the real question is with an autoimmune response, whether or not you'll have the same protection. But even if you don't individually have the same protection, you'll have more protection with a vaccine than you'll have without one. And frankly, that's the choice that you get to make. You don't get to choose whether or not you have the predisposing conditions. Okay, Diane, I hope that answered your question. Thanks for your call. Uh, we have got to wrap things up, so I'm going to give each of you 20 seconds, starting with Justin Bates. Well, I think it's just great we're having this conversation. This is a significant milestone to getting people more access and vaccinated. And I think pharmacy, along with primary care and public health, are complementary. And we're going to get this done. And uh, we're excited to uh, participate in the program. Dean. Libby, you and I have talked on this show many times about the importance of that relationship between a patient and their pharmacy. So I'm just encouraging everybody, uh, things get rolling later on this week. Uh, phone your pharmacist. See if they're one of the pharmacies that's participating in this early pilot. The rest will come on uh, later, uh, but definitely uh, reach out uh, and uh, get that vaccine if you're between 60 and 64 in this first group. Dr. Hill. 
Thank you so much. So I just want to stress that your doctor is here to answer your questions. We are very excited to be working collaboratively with the public health units and the pharmacists to make sure that we can get as many Ontarians vaccinated as quickly, efficiently, and safely as possible. If you can get a vaccine, get that vaccine. Do not worry about it. Do not stress about it. Ask the questions you need to ask and then go forth and be vaccinated. Go forth and be vaccinated. Yes, I can hardly wait. Uh, Thank you so much, Dean Miller, Justin Bates, and Dr. Samantha Hill. We appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, that bombshell interview aired last night. Harry and Meghan talking to Oprah Winfrey with some, wow, very big revelations. Um, What do you make of it, if anything, when we return? You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Excuse me. It was indeed a bombshell. I'm talking, of course, about Oprah Winfrey's interview with Meghan and Harry. They don't need last names. And their break with the royal family. The two most explosive revelations that Meghan Markle reached out for help because she was feeling suicidal and the palace denied her. And Harry said that someone in his family questioned what color baby Archie's skin would be. Jaw-dropping. Now, the question of paying for the couple's security also loomed large, and I have a lot of questions about what was said and what was implied on that subject. Uh, the numbers to call if you have a comment, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now let's go to Kim Honey, Deputy Editor of Zoomer Magazine. Hi, Kim. Hi, Libby. How are you today? I'm fine. How are you? Oh, I'm great. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for coming on. So um, what did you make of, uh, well, the entire interview, but in particular, those two bombshells? You know, it was it was astonishing to watch in the minute. But I have to say, after watching it, I have so many questions, too. You know, I mean, the visceral response to Megan talking about race and how she felt as a biracial woman and, and how she was unprepared and you know, I really felt for her. And honestly, you know, it was nothing that she had that hadn't been said before, especially in Finding Freedom, the book that Omud Scobie wrote, uh, was published uh, last fall. Um, Harry, there was a bit of lots of surprises there, too. But I mean, I just kept asking questions like, who is saying this? Who is they? Who who are you? You know, it was just it was just really unclear. And the, the editor and me afterwards was like, OK, let's drill down on this. So Pick a subject. <laughs> okay, well, and, and there were some things that I thought were, uh, I would say, a touch misleading. But uh, mm-hmm. so one thing that came out today uh, was that Harry told Oprah off the record after the interview that in terms of making that comment or question about Archie's skin color, said that it wasn't the Queen or Prince Philip. So who does that leave? Yeah, exactly. But, you know, the thing I thought about that, I mean, when she said it, you know, I sort of had this, like I said, a visceral reaction, like I really, tears sprung to my eyes. Who would say that? But then, you know, and and I have been watching some of uh, Britain's um, black pundits and commentators and academics talking about colonialism and how the Commonwealth represents that. So I understand that, you know, as a white person with privilege, I understand that they have a different take on it. So I I do come at it from that point. I was shocked at first, but then I started thinking, you know, I I actually didn't know she was biracial until, you know, she, she was his, his girlfriend. Um, And also uh, I just thought that, um, that, that this had been something that, that the British press had been reporting on with those same black commentators for some time. Like, what would their baby look like? So what I wasn't clear on was whether someone was saying, oh, it might be a brown or dark baby and that would be bad, or if it was just someone saying, oh, they're going to make beautiful babies, what they look like. Now, I'm, I'm not trying to be an apologist. I'm just sort of trying to be a bit of a devil's advocate. It just wasn't clear. 
Okay, well, I and I don't want to cast dispersions, but, you know, he he was on about uh, his problems that he's having with his father, Prince Charles, and mm-hmm. and they weren't speaking for a while. And and uh, that would uh, leave the suggestion that it was Prince Charles or his yeah, partner. That's, I, mean, I mean, the thing I is, mean, through the whole, yes, especially with the clarification today about the Queen and Philip not coming from them, you think the finger's being pointed at Charles. But I kind of find that, I mean, yes, they have, uh, of course, the institution is inherently, you know, it's, it's as people are saying today in Britain, um, even the Editors Association of Britain came out and said, oh, you know, whatever Harry said about us isn't true. We've covered their, you know, good deeds. Um, we're not inherently racist. And even one of a female white editor came out and said, you know, I can't, I can't really sign on to that comment. You know, I don't think that's true. So, you know, I mean, uh, but Charles is just sort of this hippy-dippy guy who's all about the environment. I, You know, I find it hard to believe that um, he would be so overtly racist to his son. I just don't know. We don't know. That's the other thing. That's yeah. my point here is that there is their story. Um, we'll never hear the Queen's story or Charles's story because, you know, it's, the the whole thing is don't comment, no comment, right? So there's a truth in there somewhere in between, but we just don't have enough information to say who who said it and how racist it was. And, you know, obviously she felt that it was extremely racist, and that's the feeling I got from that interview. Yeah, well, the the other thing is that I thought the implication was that they were connecting that to uh, uh, the whole business about Archie not getting a title. And she did mm-hmm. clarify, I mean, that has more to do with their unbelievably arcane rules for the su- succession. And well, she clar- I actually looked them up. Yeah, it, well, she, I looked up the rule. So, yeah. you know, that the, the, the thing, she, and she referenced it. It's George yeah. V's Royal Pro- Proclamation from 1917. And he defined the, the titles and who gets them and why. And Archie's not in the direct line of succession, so he's not a prince. But when Charles becomes king, then he is. Well, uh, or, or William. Yeah. Well, yes. I mean, it goes to it yeah. goes to Charles and his children. So when Charles is monarch, then that then the prince title goes to his children. Uh, sorry, when when um, yeah, when William. William goes, then it goes to his children. But yes, I mean, uh, my reading is Archie gets prince when Charles gets the throne. Oh, I thought it was if William gets it. It doesn't matter. But yeah, it, it, matter. It, it wasn't a situation of him not getting it because because of race. Yeah, and and, and that impression was there, especially as airing in the United States, where uh, people know even less about this stuff than we do. Yeah, no, I agree. I totally got the same impression that she was linking the two. Um, the other thing is that the question of paying for security loomed very large, that they were mm-hmm. withdrawing security. I can see why that's a concern, but uh, they were talking about the UK paying uh, security, and I don't know if that that meant... I mean, Prince, if they were working royals, Harry would still get security. And that's correct. I remember when they were here in Canada, the deal was that we had to pay for their security, and we were not very happy about that. Well, don't forget that the RCMP were protecting them yeah. when they were in Vancouver, on Vancouver Island. Exactly. So he's blaming the UK, but in fact, it might have been uh, the, the, the Commonwealth. I mean, Canada, if they decided to be here and be this half in and half out, you mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, this is the thing. I mean, she kept saying there are other people, you know. But, you know, when you think about Beatrice and Eugenie, I mean, they are not working royals. They, they come to events and things, but they pay you know, for their digs. And, um, but one point that was made, I was reading up on this too, was that, you know, often these royal members live on royal estates and they get protection that way, you know, even if they're paying for a cottage or whatever. But the thing is, why would, why would the, why would the royal family pay for security for a private person living in another country. Well, exactly. And and the whole about them not being willing to compromise on that, I mean, public officials, public people, I mean, there's a, it, depending on what you do, there's a big conflict of interest issue 
right? Yeah. If you're getting money from taxpayers and, and, um, you know, that, that, I didn't think that was dealt with. I mean, Oprah did ask Harry a tough question about his privilege, which well mm-hmm. asked, you know, when he's talking about being trapped. But, uh, yeah, they didn't, uh, you know, they well, didn't really deal with that. Yeah. And she didn't drill down. Like, I, I understand it was a three plus whatever hour she spent and she had to edit it down, but it was a softball interview. You know, when Harry talked about not having any money to pay for security, well, she didn't drill down on that because he got, when he was 25, he got something like $450,000 a year from his mom's estate. And then when he turned 30, he got the rest of it. People estimate that in the tens of millions of dollars. We don't even know how much money well, Megan he, has as an actress. He I mean, said, money. He, he said that, that if it had not been for his inheritance, they wouldn't have been able to make the break. Which yeah, is, but the point is the inheritance yeah. is like they, they've got to have thirty or forty million dollars. Yeah. So you know, I mean, him whining about, I felt that was a little whiny. Um, you know, I mean, here they 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 had RCMP in Canada, then they go to Tyler Perry's mansion, and he he provides security, and now they have to pay for it, and and. So, you know, I mean, most Mm -hmm. people sitting there, even Americans are going to be saying, well, you could have bought a $2 million house and spent $2 million on security. Or, you know, I just, I just think not a $2 million hovel, but uh, most seriously, very shocking that uh, Megan revealed she had suicidal thoughts and, and couldn't get help. That's awful. Yeah, that, that was really a horrible moment. And you could see, I mean, we saw a bit of that when she did her, ITV Tom uh, Bradby interview in October 2019 when he asked her if she was okay and she had tears in her eyes and said no one ever asked me that Uh, the whole story about her having to get dressed up and go out to that event when she was pregnant and then when she was in the royal box and the lights would go down and she would cry I mean it was just horrible it was terrible Um, but you know then today I'm thinking wait a minute Harry's had therapy so he knows a therapist Charles had it for 10 years or something like that. William has been open about it. I, why, why? No one was preventing them from picking up the phone. So I just don't quite get why Harry couldn't have called his therapist. Like, I don't understand that part either. Yeah. yeah. I mean, she wanted to, it sounds like, check herself into a, a hospital and uh, they wouldn't yeah. allow that. And that, I, I don't know, why would you even... Uh, have to ask. I mean, if you had um, a heart attack, you wouldn't wait to see the palace. It's okay. <laughs> you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah. I don't. Was, but I, I, I suspend judgment on that, mm-hmm. and I find it that uh, terrible. And of course, you know, nobody wants that. We're 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 just about out of time, Kim. Bottom line. Um. I think really what 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 does this mean to the monarchy, right? To the queen and the monarchy, she's the one who has been trying to hold this institution together and has done that extremely well by leading well and being sensitive to modern times. So the question becomes what happens because they're in a tenuous position. They always have been. They're taking taxpayers' money. How do they make this thing keep going? So it depends how this is going to play down. We know it's going to play well in America, in Britain, the press is already fighting back. You know, they're asking Boris Johnson for comment. There's a labor leader who's asking for an investigation into the palace. So, you know, I mean, how much did they hurt this family that they come from? I I don't know. I guess we'll have to see. But to me, it seems pretty damning. Okay. Well, um, uh, Megan seems to be feeling better, and she's having a baby girl, and yeah. that is good news. And... Uh, I guess we wish them the best. <laughs> yeah, they got but, the life they wanted. So that was clear. You know, I mean, they it didn't unfold the way they wanted, but they said at the end it was the, it was a fairy tale with a happy ending. Okay, well, let us hope so. Thank you so much, Kim Honey, Deputy okay. Editor of Zoomer Magazine. All right, take care. Thanks, Thank you, bye-bye. Bye. And that's all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.